Okay, so good morning, everyone. Um, we have we are recording. Obviously, I've got a mic, and we've got a microphone that's uh, going to be passed around as you have comments. Um, I'm going to encourage comments on the next few classes, primarily because it's I get a lot out of the class by listening to what you are thinking about these particular comments and topics. Um, again, I have a very um, long history of of learning and teaching this particular material in a military setting, so I'm very comfortable with what this means uh, to military, military doctrine, military uh, kind of thoughts. But as I'm introducing this into kind of a Christian setting, uh, how the church works, I want to make sure that I capture how people think about this and, and what thoughts this elicits in your mind from a Christian perspective, because that's really the focus of this class. So, um, it's about 9.30ish. We'll go ahead and kick off with a prayer. If you don't mind, I'd like to open up with a word of prayer. I haven't been doing that uh, in the past few classes, but I'd like to do that for this class. Your gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you give us, Father, at this point in time. We just ask that you allow us to, to, to just put the world at arm's length and allow us to focus on your word, what you would have us learn from this, Father, and most importantly, what you would have us do with, with what we are learning what we're experiencing today. Uh, Father, just allow us to, to meditate on your word um, and to put it into practice in our lives. Allow us to enrich the world with what you are enriching us with. Father, in all things we pray, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in military parlance, um, there's a lot of things that we've been kicking around. The, the scope of today is called economy of force, and, and it's kind of getting ready for that next shot, getting ready for the next engagement uh, of what you're gonna be doing. And again, I, I did not intend for this class to be uh, taught during the Ukraine-Russia engagement, um, but there's a lot of things that are going on that you're hearing about in the news that's going on in Ukraine that are appropriate for this particular lesson. Um, the, the concept economy of force, um, for me, it's, I've always grown up with, if a little's good, a lot must be great. I mean, it's, it's just that I, I can't get enough of a good thing. But in military thought, there, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing, or at least putting good things against the wrong effort. And the way it's written is, judicious employment and distribution of forces maximizes your effort on a primary objective while supporting only those necessary secondary objectives. Okay, so economy of force. What this means in military parlance is there are laws that govern how military forces are used. And one of the laws is you do not, do not ever attack something that does not have military value, and especially if you're going to create unintended side consequences like hurting civilians. That's, that's a law. We're taught that in military. We have that ingrained in our souls. You will never see a Western military force attacking residential areas. It just isn't going to happen. It's, it's an anathema to us. But there's another reason for that. Long ago, like World War II even, the US kind of had this philosophy that you, you could attack things and generate military value by attacking things that weren't necessarily and intrinsically a military target. Dresden, if you're familiar with the Dresden bombings in Germany, that was kind of this concept. We could, we could go after something that might generate this return on investment, maybe, but it wasn't really, really a, a military objective. And it had disastrous results. Um, we created a lot of animosity. Um, it, 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 it actually took away from uh, military effectiveness. In fact, Hitler 
One of Hitler's biggest mistakes during World War II was to attack the city of London. Not military targets in England, but attacked the city of London. London's a big area. It's, it's a pretty big city. And Hitler wanted to just take out London because he thought that if he could destroy London, he would cripple the, the mindset, the, the, the backing, the people's will to fight. And it turned out to be, again, a disaster for Hitler because when he was attacking London, it allowed the English people to build up their military forces, create bases that they could launch their attacks against Germany, and then ultimately we were able to win. So it's that kind of concept. First, it's, it's against the law to do the kinds of things that are happening, uh, attacking residential areas. But it's also a complete, um, it, it undermines your ability to, con to conduct the military operations that you're after. Okay, so the quick story is, uh, back in World War II, December 14th, 1941, a guy named Dwight Eisenhower, a uh, brilliant military mind, uh, was brought into the White House, and they asked him, okay, so Dwight, you're the brilliant military strategist, what do we do? Japan had just attacked Pearl Harbor, we had this war going on in Europe, how do we go about doing things? Long story short, Dwight came up with a plan. He said, while Japan and the Pacific are extremely important, we have to think about the urgent. The urgent in this case is the European theater. And therefore, because it is urgent, it is also the more important thing. The US can contain the Pacific, but we have to win Europe. And once we win Europe, we'll switch, and then we'll continue with the Pacific theater, and we'll win there. Dwight's forethought looked pretty promising, we engaged, and that's exactly how World War II ended. We, we accomplished our victory in Europe, and then we won the Pacific. So understanding from a Christian perspective, there are some things that we have to focus on. It may look like we have four or five things that are all competing, and they all have to be done at the same time. There's only one of us as Christians. Each of us are individuals. We are unique. We have skills. We have talents. But we also have a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of effort. And so we have to use this economy of force in our lives or we run the risk of trying to do too many things at one time. So in the, aspect, in the aspect of an individual, what is the most important, we talked about this earlier, I just want to reemphasize, what is the most important thing that we must do? What is the single battle we must win? Okay, good. Bring all this to Christ. <clears throat> I like that thought. I'm going to say there's something more important than that. I'm going to say there is, there is something more important than bringing others to Christ. But making sure we are in Christ. Yes, thank you. And again, I'm going to call on more comments. So if you don't mind, I'm going, to, I'm going to point out and just hold the thought, but I'll echo yours if it's a quick thought. But if you've got something interesting to say, please let me know and I'll get a microphone to you because I want those. So I want to start with this concept. First off, does everyone kind of see that nature, that, that winning souls to Christ is important, but the single most important thing that we as Christians have to do is we have to maintain our own salvation. Okay, I'm seeing head nods. Put your mask on first. Okay, put your mask on first. Um, that kind of has some interesting context of where you're at and who you're, yeah, okay. I, I can see that in, in certain places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So airlines, put your mask on first. Um, ah, mask. There we go. I had the COVID mask in mind. I'm sorry. You're right. <laughs> Thank you. Sign of the times. Yes. So put your mask on. Yes. Excellent observation. 
Put your mask on first. Get yourself safe because guess what? You can't save anyone else if you yourself are lost. How are you going to lead someone to Christ if you yourself have lost it? Quasi. Yeah, um, based on the comments that you made uh, from the beginning. Yes. Um, like um, you, you made a comment. I wrote it down. I do not attack any community with no military value. Yes. Um, for Christians, we, we, uh, like if that is how the military is, in terms of the world, Christians mm -hmm. don't have that kind of scope in terms of the way we should attack targets because okay. the Lord Jesus Christ has asked us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So the scope of any engagement that we input ourselves is the whole world. So we don't have um, uh, like specific scope like I have to preach to these people and I don't have to preach to these people. And before we go to any engagement, we have to make sure we have the whole armor of God, because it's the armor of God that will enable us to be able to fight very well, to be able to conquer every kind of target that we want to put ourselves in. And sometimes if you go into all the world, um, there should be rules of engagement, you know, rules of engagement, because if you go and somebody is telling you about family issue, you should not just go and start preaching the gospel. You have to resolve the family issue first. Okay. And you add your gospel to it to make it nicer. You know, so it all comes down to the point of always praying to the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom to be able to execute the kind of engagement that the Lord has assigned us. Yes, and you've read my notes because that's exactly the topic that I wanted to get into. There, no, you're good. You're perfect. Because that's, that's kind of what I was looking for is as we start looking to engage with people, the first thing we have to do is in Matthew 5, Matthew 5 verses 23, uh, we were talking about this earlier. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So there, there is the there is a need that we as individuals, as Christians, need to be tight, tight with God, understand our relationship with God. And if we have anything in that particular relationship that's troubling us, we need to go ahead and get that right first. Because as we mentioned, if we have a problem, if we're not, if we don't have the right perspective, it's hard for us to, to communicate with others because their needs may be different than what we are focusing on ourselves. It's hard to preach the gospel to somebody who's starving to death. It's hard to preach the gospel to somebody who's freezing. There are basic needs that we need to help people with, and then we can work through their relationship with Christ. And in fact, by bringing people food and shelter and clothing and comfort and warmth, we're expressing the very love that Christ wants us to share with others. And that's how we're going to move forward. And that's the, the principle of economy of force. We can't feed the world individually. I would love to be able to do that. I'd love to stop global hunger. You know, that's, that's one of the things that everybody prays about. But there are a certain amount of resources that we have, and we need to apply those carefully. And we have to apply them the way the Lord wants us to. So let me go back to our, ourselves again, just for, just for a second. Matthew chapter 16, this is kind of that, 
what, how do we put ourselves into this perspective? How do we put ourselves in the picture of knowing prioritization and, and being able to do the most important things, the right things, and put those in the right fashion? Uh, Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So I want you to think about that for a second. As we, as we are ambassadors, as we witness to the world, we are, we are individually living our lives and people are going to see how we live our lives. And likewise, he said, as we start engaging with others and, and, and witnessing to others, they will see how we live our lives. What's the most important thing to us? Are we worried about which songs we sing on Sunday morning? Are we worried about um, how many people attended today? Are we worried about the particular clothes that somebody wears? These are topics of conversation. Are we worried about where we sit? Believe it or not, there are, there are churches around that if you sit in the wrong chair, people can get offended. I, I kid you not. It's, you may have attended some of these congregations. But Lord willing, we have a broader perspective and we understand that there are comforts, there are personal things that make us comfortable and keep us happy. as Christians, and then apply that from an individual perspective in a group setting as the congregation is. Uh, let me see here. I'm going to skip through my notes for just a second because I have... Uh, okay, so let me ask you this question. Um, what was, what was Moses' failing point? Moses stumbled. Why did Moses stumble? Any thoughts? Crazy? Okay, the people. Hang on just a second, we're going to get the microphone for you. He said, condemn him um, because God gave him a specific rule and yes. uh, things that he has to tell the people. Right. And because of anger, he said it in another way. Ah. And so God said, okay, because you have said it in this way, you are not going to the promised land. Because of anger, because Moses got frustrated with the situation, the conditions, and he lost sight of the fact that God be praised. God was the first and foremost thing that was enabling them to cross. And Moses took credit upon himself where God was enabling the activity. Again, it's, it's a momentary kind of thing that happened, but Moses missed his priorities. Um, there's, let's see, I'll go through a couple of more notes here. When I mentioned the single most important battle for us, there's a reason why that battle is important. Moses stumbled because Moses lost sight of his relationship with God. 
and more importantly, Israel's relationship with God for that brief moment. If I were to ask you, what can Satan do to you personally? What are things that come to your mind? What are things that Satan can do to you personally? Get you distracted, yes. Satan can distract us. Um, how would Satan distract us? Working on our weaknesses, okay. Some examples. How about an example? Yes. Okay. Wi-Fi going out at your house. These are things that can cause you to, to get aggravated with what's going on. What if I asked you, can Satan, can Satan harm you physically? Is Satan able to harm you physically? When the Lord allows that. Okay. Has the Lord, we have record of some of Satan being allowed to affect somebody physically. Job, there we go. Yes. Job was affected both materially and physically. And there was a lot of distraction going on in Job's life. But the intent behind what was going on with Job was to strengthen Job's witness, his ability to convey that message to the rest of the world. Job is one of the most single powerful witnesses in Scripture. Amen? Job went through an amazing, an amazing amount of pain and ordeal, yet he stayed faithful to God. That witness is incredible. We have that same opportunity. The Lord is going to allow things to be put in our lives, like Wi-Fi going out, and challenges that we have going on. Uh, my brother, like I mentioned, his, uh, his parents, his mother and father-in-law, uh, being brought over from Ukraine, and the, the, they're still going through that. Um, Tuesday, the father-in-law went through uh, quadruple heart bypass surgery. So they're still dealing with that, the, the effects of that. But those are things that come into our lives to challenge us, but how we deal with those things is what allows us to be witnesses of who God is and what God is in our lives. Can God, I'm sorry, can Satan affect your salvation directly? Can Satan reach in and snuff your salvation out? Nope, there we go. That's off limits. God said the rules of engagement for Satan are you cannot, you have no ability to deny salvation to those that I have deemed saved. Is that reassuring? Does that make us feel good? Okay. So if Satan can't reach in and directly cause us to become unsaved, what is the threat to our salvation? ourselves. Our salvation, once God purchased it, once Christ died for us on the cross, there is nothing that can prevent us from being saved except how we deal and how we go through life. Okay? Amen? So Satan is going to do everything he can and create all of these distractions that we're talking about in order to get us to focus on the wrong things, to get us to, to drift away from God, to cause us to lose faith. Our job is to build our faith to the point that Satan and his attacks against it are meaningless. They don't have that same, they don't have any results. Peter says it this way, uh, 2 Peter, 
but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Therefore, brethren, being even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. So for an entrance will be supplied to your abundance into the everlasting kingdom of the Lord and Savior Christ. Listen to how that builds. The first few things are on us, and immediately it switches to external. Listen to how it builds. Add diligence, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance. And then he switches from godliness to brotherly kindness. We have a pivot. Once you have these virtues, once you have these things intrinsically built up in yourself, that's the first fight. Then you can take it externally. Then you can go brotherly kindness and from brotherly kindness and love. That's how the flower grows. Right now we're watching spring happen. The flower started as a seed way down the ground. Nobody saw it, but it was nurtured. It was watered. As warmth applied, the flower starts to blossom and then everybody can enjoy it. Make sure you don't lose fact that that seed and the stem and the root of that flower have to be there. We as Christians have to make sure that that nurturing of the flower is there, or we're going to lose the ability to be that flower. Okay, so that's individual. Now I want to open it up for some conversation because this is how we as a congregation want to put things in priority. What is the most important thing the church should focus on? We've had a lot of different thoughts on this one, but I want, to, I want to get your thoughts. As a congregation, as the Lord's body, we've got a thought here? Okay, Unity, keeping the body together. Unity, establishing, ensuring the body stays together. Just as we individually have to stay connected with Christ, our purpose is unity with whom? Unity with God, yes. Unity with God. That is the single most important thing the church can ever accomplish, is that unity with Christ. Is that hard to do? Christ first? The military has a thing, people first, mission always. Christ is first, right? Others next, okay? So if the congregation is struggling to put Christ first, is the congregation going to be effective? No. We could have the biggest buildings. We could have the most beautiful music in the world. But if we don't have Christ first, can we be effective in preaching Christ? You can have the biggest budget. In fact, Satan would like for us to have a big budget and pretty buildings and great singing and comfortable facilities. Because what happens when, that, when all that's working the way it's supposed to work? We get comfortable. We start going, huh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of happy here. I'm kind of good in my home. I mentioned attacking residences is a very, very poor project for military forces. Before Russia invaded Ukraine, there were probably 100,000 to 200,000 people in Ukraine that really, really had ill will towards Vladimir Putin. And there were 40 million that really just didn't care. As of today, I think you'd flip those. There are 40 million people in Ukraine that really, really hate Vladimir Putin. 
And if they could do anything, they would absolutely want him gone. We have to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to get comfortable and lose the perspective that Christ is the center. Satan is going to attack this church. Satan is going to attack this congregation, but he's going to attack in some weird ways, some ways that we really aren't prepared for. He's going to allow us to be comfortable. He's going to allow us to have good music. In fact, he's going to allow us to pick where we sit. What's wrong with choice? What are some of the challenges we have with choice and opportunities? We get comfortable. What's wrong with choice? Ah, entitlement. Thank you, Joe. We feel we're entitled to make a particular choice. What happens if my choice is different than Joe's choice or Demetrius's choice or Quincy's choice? What if they have different ideas and different opinions? We have enough resources to do all of these things. Why can't we do them all? Thoughts? Quincy. Well, then just, just a second, let me get a, a microphone to you. Yes. Um, all of us have different choices that we make. And um, the fact that my choice is different from you should not make me become your enemy. Um, there are some instances where people have made so many choices, uh, both at home as families and uh, both uh, and also within the church. And those kind of choices have brought conflicts and separation, hate within the community that we find ourselves. But at that point in time, if you decide to hate somebody because of the choice or the way the person speaks or the ideas that the person is expressing, um, you are committing sin or you are committing a wrong kind of uh, things that the Lord has asked us not to. So in that instance, what we are supposed to do is to pray because at a point where um, there is a situation that you cannot resolve. We don't take an immediate decision based on the way you are thinking. You know, otherwise you are going to destroy the church. You are going to destroy your family. You are going to destroy everything. Right. You know, so the most important thing is to always pray and ask for the Lord's guidance. Like Saul, who was waiting for Samuel for a long time and Samuel didn't come. And so he has to take a decision. He made a mistake and that destroyed his kingdom. It's the same way in the church if you see any kind of ideas, you see any kind of conflict that is opposing to yours, don't make an immediate decision. Otherwise you are going to destroy the church. Don't make utterances, don't make, um, don't speak things that will destroy the church. You know, sometimes so, some of us have experienced some kind of situations that we are not ready to go back again. Right. Sometimes we make utterances, sometimes we make statements that are not good for the church and it destroys the church, you know. So at the end of the day, let us all be humble in our thoughts. Let, all, let us all be patient in the way we speak. Let us seek the Lord and everything that we talk about or about to say or actions that we are about to take, let us ask ourselves, does Christ support this? Yes. Is that the way Christ would do it? Exactly. Prayerful consideration, prayerful decision patience, peace, all of the things that come along. Chris? Just let me get a microphone over to you. To your, to your question about if everybody has an idea what's wrong with 
going after all of them. Right. You don't have enough resources to do them all. You ah. have too many fronts opened up, so none are going to be effective. Precisely. So you've got to support the amount your resources can actually effectively handle. Right. We, like Koizu said, and like you were echoing, we start getting distracted. We want quick results. We want this thing done now. And, and we quickly run out of resources. We can have a tremendous amount of resources. And in fact, Satan will allow us to have enough resources to think that we can get everything done. But that's when we start running out of the fact that there's only so many people. There's only so many hands to do things. And we get distracted doing all of these other things that we lose sight of the fact that God wants us to be together. God wants us unified. God wants us doing his mission. The church in Philadelphia, church in Philadelphia uh, Revelations chapter 3, is a, a priceless example of how this is applied. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, who is true. He who has the key to David, who opens the... He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those in the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews, but are not, and lie indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that, they, and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept my command to persevere, and I will keep you from the hour which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so the church in Philadelphia didn't have a tremendous amount of resources. In fact, they were resource poor. They had just a little strength. And they could have gone after these fake synagogues, these, these false Jews who are preaching all kinds of crazy things. But rather than do that, rather than try to get caught up in these contests of words of who's saying the right thing and how things are working on, the church in Philadelphia simply prayed. They locked themselves down and said, we're going to focus on persevering for Christ. We're going to persevere for the truth. It's kind of funny. There's a saying, if you wrestle with pigs, both of you get muddy and only one of them likes it. Okay. So that's the key. If we start as a congregation trying to fight all of the different fights that Satan is going to set up for us because we feel like that's the right thing to do without praying and without maintaining unity in the congregation, the congregation can get pulled off into so many different disparate avenues and we each take our own ideas as that's what needs to happen. We were a congregation in Virginia. I think there were probably 40 people in the congregation at, at its peak. And uh, one of the men put out a survey and said, hey, what should this congregation be focusing on? How should we be spending the few, few resources we had? And we created a scatter diagram of, of good things. I mean, they, they made sense. They were legitimate thoughts. But when we put it down on a pie chart, along the edges were all of these ideas. And there was nothing in the middle. There literally was no unity in the church that said this is how we wanted to do things. What's the difference between how and what? How has a plan, okay? How has actions? What has, okay, what has a question? I want to go a little deeper there. Which comes first, what or how? 
what? Thank you. A lot of people think the how comes first because how am I going to do anything if I don't know how I'm going to do it? What should the church be focused on? We mentioned it earlier. Unity, big U, unity. How can the church go about accomplishing unity? Communication. Loving one another. Fellowship. Parties, potlucks. Come on, you can... There's no end to how, okay? That... You guys, oh boy, you guys um, were leading as a group of men, yes. didn't have eldership or yes. anyone to help focus that. So, that. so everybody had an individual viewpoint, but you didn't have the leadership in the middle to direct those individual thoughts. So the leadership in that church was literally the, the 10 or 15 men who would gather together and we would try to, try to lead the church as men of the congregation. We didn't have elders. And that became very problematic because without leadership to focus the church on what was important, the hows became the thing that everybody started contemplating. The hows became more important than the what. And as we start working through, like I said, from a military discipline mindset, it's easy for me to explain this because it's how military planners think. You focus on the objective, you think about the what you're trying to accomplish, and then how you're going to accomplish it just sort of falls out. You start looking at what makes sense. From a church, from a congregational perspective, we have a tremendous amount of hows. Yes? So um, in my day job, um, I have this conversation a lot because okay. we have a limited resources to do a really important job. And I tell people all the time that you have to be very ruthless about prioritization because if you choose to do the thing that's your pet project or the thing that's easiest or the thing that's right in front of you, then you have effectively said that that's the most important thing instead of the thing that's actually the most important thing, because you can't usually do both. So you have to be constantly um, refocusing back on that most important thing to make sure that gets done, and then whatever's left over can be for the other stuff. Right. You are taking the resources that you have, which is time. Believe it or not, time is a very precious commodity and a very precious resource. We only have so much time. We only have so much time on the earth. I mean, for crying out loud, we're, we're not here forever. And so we have to be careful how we're going to spend those resources. And if we start getting into pet projects that are, that are interesting and, and fun, we can lose sight of the fact that the most important thing isn't getting done. For individuals, we get distracted and we start, our faith starts to suffer. As a congregation, we lose fact of, of, of unity and, and, purpose, and purpose of what we're trying to accomplish. And suddenly the what's start to become more important to discuss, I'm sorry, the hows start to become more important to discuss than the what. Um, Acts chapter 2, again, this is a very interesting, I mean, it's almost like it was written for this course because we're, we're talking about the congregation, the very first congregation, and what made them successful and how they went about doing things. So listen carefully. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. 
praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You've heard that a bunch. That's the what. They were going about doing things simply, heart to heart, soul to soul, talking to people individually. Here's the how. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up. Sorry, I skipped a, I skipped a bit. This is Acts chapter 3. And immediately his feet and ankle bones were received strength. So he leaped up, stood and walked, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, and they were greatly amazed. In Acts chapter 5, verse 12, verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord on Solomon's porch. The, the first church had this ability to do miracles. They were able to lay on hands and heal. And, and that was an immediate sign that something was different. That, this, that these people had something that were really, really different. The miracles of God. We don't have those anymore. But, where's he? Uh, in the Lord Jesus, there is no Greek. Mm -hmm. There are no barbarians. There are no all, all those lists that were listed in the Bible. Right. Um, what the Bible wanted to say was, when you come into Christ, just take off all those kind of pride that you have. Yes. And just come as you are. You know, because at the end of the day, if you are the president of the United States, and somebody, excuse me to say, is uh, a janitor or whoever the person is, when you come to Christ, you are all the same. And in Christ, um, the fact is, all of us have the same spirit. There is no black spirit. There is no white spirit. There is no any other spirit. The spirit is just one. And right. it is the spirit that moves us. Right. And so if you come into Christ, there is no white, there is no black, there is nothing. We are all presenting ourselves as living sacrifice before the Lord. You know, so at the end of the day, when we come, we come as, as we are. We put every position, everything that we have outside and just enter and worship the Lord. So you said, you said how to live or live as a living sacrifice. Let me ask you this. How does that look? What does it look like to live your life as a sacrifice to Christ. In the front. Whenever I wear a Laurel Church of Christ t-shirt out and about, I know I gotta watch my P's and Q's. Okay. Not say certain words, um, and no, but anyway, the point is, when my atheist friends or my neighbors or whomever see me, yeah, they see LaDonna, but I really want them to see God. I want them to see Jesus. So my actions, my deeds, the way I behave, the there way I react, the way I help, like you said at the beginning, you can't reach anyone if they're freezing, cold, hungry, being abused. Right. So Those are the things that are miracles today. I'm going to say it again. I probably will give some interesting, funny thoughts. Living your life as a sacrifice to Christ 
is something the world simply can't get, get its head wrapped around. The world back then couldn't get its head around somebody putting their hands on somebody and suddenly they're able to walk when they've been crippled. That instantly triggered, whoa, something's odd here. For us today, living as, living as Christians, true Christians, honest, loving, caring, concerned about our fellow man. Nobody in the world lives like that anymore, except Christians, because the world has become comfortable. The world has enough resources to meet most of its needs. The world has become this, this place where Satan can cause you to just go to sleep. Very few of us are awake. Very few of us actually want the other person, our fellow man, to know who God is and, and to come to Christ. That is the 21st century equivalent of what they were doing in Acts. Being able to reach out and help somebody and, and to say, brother, I'm praying for you and, and I care for you. That's what the congregation can focus on. That's what the church in Philadelphia was focused on. Caring and tending to one another and being true to Christ. We can do that. We as a congregation can focus on making the what the single most important thing and the how something that we as a congregation prayerfully consider. Like Wazy said, we sit down and we don't jump to a how, but we think about it and we understand the impacts of making sure that that how is going to preserve the economy of force that we have as a congregation. And making sure that we line ourselves up so that we're using the few resources we have to maximize that effect. Satan's going to try to get in and mess that up. Satan is going to try to distract the what and to cause us to focus on the how. And that's Satan's use of the economy of force against us. We as a congregation have to be aware of that and know that he's going to come after us and try to distract us and get us to, to fall asleep. But we have, we have each other. We have all of us and we have the time that we have. And that is the end of my time here. But I appreciate your comments I very much. And again, I want to look forward to, to, to the comments coming forward in the next few classes as well. But thank you very much for coming out. I appreciate the audience and the group. And you guys have a wonderful afternoon. It's going to be a little chilly, so stay as warm as you can. All right. Thank you very much.